Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's new mayor-elect and councillors begin to get their feet wet. Home builders are applauding the opening of the Greenbelt. Ford Nation versus QP. Which playbook is working the best? Canada's largest vision loss study is being conducted right here in Hamilton. U.S. midterms did not see a red wave. And Hollywood star Ryan Reynolds wants to buy an NHL team. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's new city council is in the midst of a two-day orientation phase. It began yesterday. It continues today before they are all sworn in on November 16th, which is one week from today. Andrea Horvath is the mayor-elect with the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Andrea, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. Good morning. How is orientation going? What, what What's the focus? Well, it's uh, it's been going very, very well. We have obviously most of the new councillors, uh, if not all, are there, and the returning councillors are there as well. Uh, and really, it's uh, an opportunity for the city manager, Jeanette Smith, and the general managers and directors to give an overview of uh, what's happening in the organization. Uh, that's what happened yesterday, the city council and staff relationship policies, um, the city clerk's role, all of those kinds of things were reviewed yesterday. Is it fun? <laughs> we try to make it fun. <laughs> you know what? You know, what's fun about it is that uh, is that we are. It's very um, informal. So you know, the presentations provide serious information, and that that's formal uh, insofar as it's important information that we need. But it, but it really started off with. Um, uh, with a you know a really kind of icebreaker type of activity that uh, that I undertook as well as a matter of fact uh, just to get people in the in the mindset that this isn't you know um, this isn't schooling uh, this is an opportunity to develop relationships to get understanding of of what's happening uh, what's been happening what will be happening and and there was a lot of encouragement for people to participate to ask questions and to tell stories and and those kinds of things to to talk about what they heard on the doorsteps and and that's exactly what happened yesterday you're, and today we have similar meetings you're no stranger to this process you were a city councillor uh, a new councillor at that in 1997 is, is the process any different well, you know, I've been asked this question before, and uh, for the life of me, I cannot recall exactly what happened in the orientation uh, way back then. Uh, but uh, but what I am happy about is that uh, that we have a, a solid orientation now, with two thirds of the council turning over, uh, ten new faces, and as you indicate, myself and uh, and uh, Councillor Lech McNeekin actually have served before on council, but it's been some time, uh, and so ten new faces, uh, getting um, their feet underneath them, having a chance to. Uh, to spend some time with their colleagues uh, as well as with the the city staff has been uh, extremely important. And as I said, t- tomorrow, uh, or rather today, same kinds of meetings. We're going to be hearing about the budget process today, about the communications uh, uh, you know issues or, or the communications group, uh, people that are you know talking to citizens, people that work with the media, uh, people that uh, using are using show- social media for the city, uh, and then we're going to have a bit of a a bit of an opportunity for councillors to, to uh, let folks know what their awards are all about. And so that'll be fun, too. Inauguration Day is one week from today, November 16th. Are, are you itching to get this thing going? Well, you know, it's it's been, uh, it's been a fast transition, as you know. So I, I am very excited about next week. I think uh, everybody who was elected uh, and got the opportunity to... Um, to spend those months uh, talking to people in Hamilton uh, really do want to get to work. Uh, I think that's a sentiment that we're all sharing. Uh, but uh, one of the things we 
made sure to do this time around is uh, is invite the public in uh, to the council uh, swearing in. It, that's something that um, uh, that was necessary. It, it, doesn't, it hasn't always been that way, but with the uh, the things that we heard on the doorstep, people saying they wanted to feel. Uh, more um, connected to the city, more engaged by the city. Uh, a good first start is to actually invite people into the inaugural. So that's happening next Wednesday, as you as you uh, mentioned. Uh, 5.45, we're suggesting if people are coming from the public uh, because the, uh, the event gets underway at 6.30, there's no cost. You're welcome to come and attend, but it's first come, first serve. Uh, we'll, we'll see uh, how many folks um, decide to join us, and I'm, I'm hoping that many, many do. It is an historic election in terms of the number of people uh, that are new at the table, um, and we wanted to make sure it was accessible as possible. We only have about 60 seconds. As you know, the provincial government's ordering Hamilton and other cities to expand their urban boundary and, and chewing up the green belt. There is a consultation period as part of this process. Are you going to fight this? Uh, well, the city council is, uh, is uh, as I said, uh, is getting uh, um, sworn in next week. I've heard yesterday, and I'm sure we'll hear again today, a lot of concern from the councillors and myself as well about the implications this has for Hamiltonians. Uh, there's a reason why we decided or why the former council decided not to uh, increase the urban boundary. It has to do with cost. It has to do with proper uh, planning, smart planning. It uh, has to do with making sure we have the proper parks and the infrastructure and the, the roadways and the sewer and water. And, uh, and that costs a lot of money. So we, um, we, and we need to protect farm, farmland and we need to protect our food uh, sources. And so, yeah, there's a lot of concern. So we're going to hear from the staff a report, uh, but um, I, I know that folks are up in arms and, and, uh, and we're going to have to make some pretty uh, serious decisions around how we try to get this uh, rolled back by the, uh, the province. And if that's not going to happen, how do we do something locally to make sure uh, that we are being responsible to, uh, you know, to all of the things that uh, we need to take care of, including uh, environment um, and, uh, and finances. There will be plenty of time to talk about this, I'm sure. We really appreciate your time today, Mayor-elect Horvath. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Have a good day. You too. That's Andrea Horvath, Mayor-elect in the City of Hamilton, will be inaugurated with the rest of uh, City Council one week from today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Massive land supplies within existing urban areas around the Greater Golden Horseshoe. So you have to ask yourself, what is this all about and what is the rush in in going in this direction when it's just simply not justifiable when we're talking about the housing crisis and housing affordability. That is the voice of Linda Lukasik, Executive Director, Environment Hamilton, a guest on the show here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, chiming in on the Ontario government's move to open up parts of the Greenbelt for new housing. It certainly has some people foaming at the mouth. It has others applauding the move from the latter category. Let's introduce our next guest, Mike Collins-Williams, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. Mike, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Doing great. How are you? I'm okay. Should come as no surprise that you're applauding this decision by the province? Well, for several years now, the West End Home Builders Association has been articulating our concern that we have a housing supply problem, which is a significant contributor to the affordability challenges that we're facing here in Hamilton and, and right across southern Ontario, for that matter. Too many people, they're struggling to find an attainable home that meets their family's needs. It's a complex problem. It needs a wide range of different solutions uh, but the big picture is today, this economic region that we find ourselves in, the Greater Golden Horseshoe, has about 10 million people. And we're expected to be close to 15 million by 2051. Now, those are some big numbers. So 
picture this. This is really the equivalent of the entire population of Greater Montreal moving here over the next three decades. We're going to need to build a lot more housing of all types and tenures. We need more studio apartments, more three-bedroom condos, more stacked townhomes, more detached homes, more secondary suites, student residence, rentals, and below-market affordable housing. You know, you, you name it, Rick, we need more of it. Do we not have enough space in the city? We have enough space for um, some growth. Uh, we do need to expand the urban boundary. Uh, that was a decision that the province made uh, when they issued a new official plan uh, last week. Uh, the city's own staff, the professional planning staff at City Hall, determined that we needed a boundary expansion. Uh, council didn't particularly, the, the previous council didn't particularly like that answer. So they actually went out and got a third party peer review. Guess what the third party peer review said? It said that we needed to have an urban boundary expansion. But the decision that the province made is not just about the boundary expansion. Uh, the province made several other major changes to Hamilton's official plan. And, you know, it's a little peculiar that the, the previous council decided to uh, not have a boundary expansion. But in that same decision, they brought in new height limits across the city. So they weren't even uh, facilitating the necessary intensification that we need. Uh, essentially, the province had to step in. Uh, sometimes the local interest is not the same as the public interest. And the province had to change a whole bunch of different policies in Hamilton's official plan. So we now don't have a height limit in Hamilton's official plan. That's that's brand new. Now, the secondary plan downtown still has a height limit, but we're going to start to see much taller buildings. Um, skyscrapers start to go up in the next few years in downtown Hamilton in and around the GO station. Uh, and not just downtown. Part of the changes that the province made was along the entire BLAST network, they've changed the planning rules to allow much taller buildings, more intensification, more mid-rises. So, um, you know, there there's controversy to it. I accept that. But um, the province has made changes not only to allow the boundary expansion, but to allow a lot more intensification. So Hamiltonians are going to start to see their neighbourhoods changing uh, in the coming years to allow for more types of housing than previously. Mike Collins-Williams is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mike is the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association, and we're talking about chewing up some of the green belt to build these new homes. Many critics of uh, the government's move say this is going to lead to more McMansions and will not address the affordable housing crisis. Your reaction to that? It's really about having a diversity of different housing types. So, you know, as I said before, we're going to see a lot more intensification, high-density housing um, in these proposed expansion areas, you know, this is not the type of communities that were built newly in Hamilton up on the mountain in the 80s and 90s. Um, there are uh, targets for the densities. Um, you know, you'd be surprised if, if you go along Dundas in North, North Oakville, some of the uh, more recent expansion areas, uh, these are not seas of single family homes on, on large lots. These are mostly stacked townhomes. There's even towers, mid-rise towers going up. Um, so we're going to see much more complete communities with a diversity of housing types and uses. Uh, but we need all types of housing in Hamilton. Um, the previous decade, we've averaged just under 2,000 units a year. Uh, some years we've cracked over 2,000. Some years have been less. Uh, but the new Bill 23 that the province has brought in to deal with the demographic realities and the population growth coming our way, uh, Hamilton has a brand new target of 47,000 new units over the next decade. That is more than doubling the pace of housing construction in Hamilton. 
and we're not alone. A lot of other communities across the province have received these targets. Um, just the volume of growth coming into uh, this region, it's the fastest growing region in North America. We need to build and we need to build a lot more of everything, all types of housing. We also need a lot more tradespeople, but that's a conversation for another day. Mike, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day, Rick. Mike Collins-Williams, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I don't want to fight. I just want the kids in school. You know, I'm, I'm past the stage of, of fighting and and it's not worth it. People don't want it. Parents don't want it. Students don't want it, for sure. Well, the fight is on. The battle lines have been drawn, and the jousting is continuing. And with a major battle in negotiations between QP and the Ontario government over, at least for now, uh, who's coming out looking better? Is it the provincial government? Is it the QP education workers, or at least the union leaders? And did the Ford government blink, or was this their game plan all along? Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin waking you up on a happy hump day here in Hamilton. Kim Wright is a principal and founder of Wright Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm good. There is a lot to unpack here. So maybe we'll start with how the government has approached this battle with QP. I think for my uh, stance, you know, this was a little too heavy handed using the notwithstanding clause to trample on workers' rights and impose a contract. And only after multiple unions were going to announce a massive one day walkout. uh, Did the government backtrack and commit to repealing Bill 28? What do you make of the government's playbook here? Yeah, they critically misjudged how much uh, public sector, private sector, individuals uh, are not fine with the government using the notwithstanding clause at the drop of a hat. You know, frankly, Premier Ford has got to remember he's not Premier Legault of of, uh, Quebec and can't use it all the time. But in particular, on workers' rights and the right to collective bargaining and being able to cram down a contract whenever the Premier of the day sees fit, That was not going to be on for people because what it also showed, and the government has tried this for years now uh, to make differentials between public sector and private sector unions. But what everyone recognized very quickly is if you were going to do this on janitors and secretaries, that every other workplace was going to be subject to this going forward, whether it is with this government or future governments. So everybody collectively went, whoa, no, not this is not on. Um, and there were so many other tools at the premier and the education minister's disposal. This was a bridge too far for literally everyone. It seemed that the government jumped from, hey, we're talking to, let's okay, now we're going to use the notwithstanding clause instead of, Hey, listen, education workers, we're going to legislate you back. We're going to implement back-to-work legislation, which has been done numerous times in this province, and then we'll continue negotiating. Uh, They really skipped over that step. Yeah, they skipped over the ideas of back-to-work legislation. Look, I'm not a big fan of any of these things. Just to be clear, I think the best settlement is always a negotiated settlement. It's better for workers. It's better for government. It's better for taxpayers. But at their disposal, they could have done back-to-work legislation. They could have declared these workers an essential worker. It means they would have had to pay more. Um, but there are options they had on the table. They went, jumped over that. And you'll remember last week, and even they were trying to use it earlier this week, language like QP had walked from the walked away from the table as a way to uh, to move the conversation. That was categorically false. 
and kept being pointed out as being categorically false. So the government really didn't have a lot of legs to stand on. So when MPPs went back to their ridings, they were getting an earful on the ground, not just from union members, but from you know every pocket, including conservative members. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies. And we're talking about the latest in the negotiations between the provincial government and CUPE education workers. Let's go to the union side. They started asking uh, for an 11.7% raise. They brought that down to 6.5%. And now they're saying that they don't want a two-tier pay scale for their members. From a messaging standpoint or a politicking standpoint, if you will, has the union played this game well? Because as we know, there's a fine line from, you know, getting what you think a worker deserves to, you know, the greed factor kind of setting in and that could change public opinion. Yeah, one of the one of the things they started reminding people was that these particular classifications of workers haven't gotten anything more than zeros and one percents for the last decade. That started shifting public opinion. Uh, of of course, everyone's recognizing the inflationary challenges we're all in. So they moved their messaging quite a bit. But I also think what helped. Um, was telling the, the, the narrative of, of these workers, the 39,000 is not okay, those types of messages certainly resonated with uh, the electorate. But then it was also a shift within the House of Labor. You had this fraction fractious nature going into the last election. Certain unions or certain union locals uh, were supporting the Ford government uh, and others were not. Um, but when the chips were down, like all of other families, the House of Labor came together and said, this is an attack on all workers, unionized, public sector, private sector, and non-unionized. Um, and that really did change some of the tone. Um, and we saw parents coming out to picket lines. We saw um, people without children in the system coming out, recognizing that a well-funded, well-coordinated public, uh, public education system is actually what helps Ontario. We also heard from the Premier yesterday, who, and I'll give him a big check mark for this, setting the stage, because we know that other contract negotiations with teachers' unions mm -hmm. are ongoing. Uh, you know, they're working without a contract as well. But he basically said that, listen, we'd, we'd love to give these workers who deserve more, more, but we have all these other things to consider. And the billions that are going to be spent on these deals will take away from infrastructure, highways, roads, all, all that kind of stuff. Is that messaging on point? And should he continue with that? Yeah, that becomes this false equivalency. And so one of the things that the Premier and the government are trying to move away from is the discussion around what is called Bill 124, which capped public sector union uh, wages, wage increases to 1%. And that has become a big sticking point and a challenge, for example, for nurses, for doctors, um, and how that will play out over the coming weeks as we're finding more and more folks in the healthcare system uh, are burnt out or looking for opportunities south of the border. Um, so he become, it becomes a very big challenge for him. But I will always say this, there is a lot of money in, in the Ontario government and in the Treasury. There would be more if they would stop giving away $200 checks here and there, uh, which takes away billions out of the Treasury for, for programming. Um, so ultimately, the budget and budgeting processes are about what are your values as a government. And if not paying workers appropriately is their value, then they're going to have a bigger challenge going forward. Great stuff, as always, from Kim Wright. Kim, thanks for your time today.
Thank you so much for having me. That's Kim Wright, Principal and Founder, Wright Strategies. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Pretty cool story, and it's happening right here in Hamilton. Researchers are leading Canada's largest vision loss study. Uh, this is kind of cool. Let's dive right into it with Dr. Varun Chowdhury, the Chief of Ophthalmology at the Regional Eye Institute at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and Professor of Surgery at McMaster University. Dr. Chowdhury, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Greg. Thank you. Great to be here. This is, as I mentioned, Canada's largest vision loss study. What do you hope to achieve here? Well, Rick, it, it, uh, eighth-grade macular degeneration is, is the leading cause of blindness in Canada. So you would think we want to know all about this disease, who has the disease, what are the risk factors, how are people coping with this, how are people, what type of treatments they're getting, are they getting treatment at the right time? So lots of questions, and we, at a very fundamental level, have never studied this disease in our patient population. So, Rick, we know that about 2.5 million Canadians are living with this disease, but those are estimates from other countries. And we know there's large variabilities across the world because of genetics and ethnicity and, and environmental factors. The hope really is to understand the burden of this disease, this leading cause of blindness in Canada, and hopefully use that information to improve the patient journey. So what is macular degeneration? What is happening within the eye? So ER retina is the, like the wallpaper inside the inside the eye, and it, it picks up light signals like the film and, and the cameras or in the decades ago. And over time, this wallpaper is working very hard and producing garbage and this garbage we have a garbage clearance system in our eye that takes the garbage out and makes sure everything's clean but in patients with macular degeneration that garbage pickup system not working well and essentially you have trash building up right in the center of your vision and this is the vision patient used to see faces to read to drive so the most precious part, part of our vision is getting filled with garbage and as you can imagine that causes vision loss and, and potentially blindness is it fair to say that the way someone lives will impact whether or not they get it or not? It, certainly, environmental factors play a very big role. Uh, we know big ones include smoking, a history of smoking puts patients at, at higher risk, high blood pressure puts patients at, at higher risk. Uh, there are certain things like Mediterranean diet, uh, high in fish, lots of green vegetables, low in red meat that have been linked with, with lower risk of macular degeneration. But the two big risks I think patients need to know about is smoking and high blood pressure, that they can you know, truly try to modify themselves. We're talking about the uh, country's largest vision loss study that is being launched uh, by researchers right here in Hamilton, including Dr. Varun Chowdhury, the Chief of Ophthalmology at the Regional Eye Institute at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and a Professor of Surgery at McMaster University. Dr. Chowdhury is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. So how is this study going to be conducted? So we are leveraging some excellent work that has been taken place already in Hamilton. Um, there's a very large study, uh, the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, um, that's been led by Dr. Perminder Reyna, and we have collected lots of outstanding data, including images of patients' eyes. So we have data on, on lots of images that have been collected of, of random patients across the country. And what we are doing now is we're setting up the whole infrastructure to actually assess and quantify this disease. You've got to measure this disease very carefully. There's many stages of this. There's very robust uh, methods required to actually assess if the patient has it or not, how much they have it, how it's progressing over time. So we're putting the infrastructure so we can analyze a random sample of close to 8,000 images to truly get it to a very deep dive 
in, in the type of disease patients have, the level of disease, and how it's progressing. And again, this study is going to determine how this develops or, or, or and or um, what treatments could possibly work to slow it down or eliminate it? So this study is, is the, the focus here, Rick, is to understand the burden. So how many patients have macular degeneration? And then we're going to look at what stages of macular degeneration, because we know many patients have early macular degeneration, but there's no treatment for that. But for intermediate or higher levels, there is. And more very interestingly, Rick, new treatments are coming out. You know, I was at the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting about two months ago, and fascinating, outstanding data for dry macular degeneration treatment that hopefully will go to the FDA, and we may have new treatments in a year or two. So we need to, to us to understand, you know, if our patients are eligible for those treatments, we need to understand the disease they have. So the goal is really understanding the disease, the disease burden. And Rick, the other thing is we want to look at how it's impacting patients' life. Uh, the, you know, we know macular degeneration is linked with depression, uh, quality of life, heart disease, including death. Um, so we want to try to link all of these to really get a better understanding of how Canadians are coping with this disease, how it's impacting them, and hopefully we can advocate for uh, you know, the right resources needed to help them cope with it. This is a very robust and uh, sounds like intensive study. How long is it going to take to gather all this information and uh, you know make some uh, recommendations on how to move forward? So our hope is that, Rick, about two years, the first six months, eight months, is really to put in uh, the infrastructure and the expertise uh, and training to, to do this very well. And then we hope a year, a year and a half, we'll have data after that. So I'm hoping a two-year timeline. We know as people age, their eyesight gets worse, but are there warning signs when it comes to macular degeneration? Yeah, great question, Rick. I think uh, macular degeneration specifically impacts the central vision, so if patients are noticing uh, distortion that they're reading or blurriness right in the center of your vision. In patients who are older than 50, you want to think about macular degeneration. If you have a family history, that certainly puts you at higher risk for macular degeneration. So those are symptoms to watch out for, and uh, we, we recommend that you get, you know, if anyone over 50 gets, um, especially if you have a family history, gets regular eye exams by the eye uh, professional, because ultimately they're the ones who need to look in and actually make the diagnosis. Patients themselves can't diagnose the disease itself. Do you need any volunteers for the study? <laughs> well, thankfully, I, I, right now we have lots of very large data sets, so lots of work to do, but uh, if I need more help, Rick, I'll, I'll come knocking for sure. Excellent. We'll certainly have you on the show to, uh, to uh, put out the call. Dr. Chowdhury, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for your time, and uh, enjoy your day. Thanks for talking, Rick. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Varun Chowdhury, Chief of Ophthalmology at the Regional Eye Institute at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, also a professor of surgery at McMaster University. Exciting things happening in terms of research here in Hamilton, as we know, and that is continuing with this study. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today, control of Congress, uh, well, it still hangs in the balance. In, in many respects, it's too close to call. Rick Samprin with you. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Let's dive into the midterm elections in the states with Dr. Joel Sokolowski, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University. Joel, how are you today? Uh, fine. Uh, for weeks, we've heard from Republicans predicting a red wave across Congress. Uh, we haven't seen that. Was it just a bunch of hot air or did the GOP misread the room? Well, I think it's there was a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, commentators and uh, pundits were making that the story. Um, I mean, it's traditional that uh, 
in the first midterm of a president's first term, um, they do poorly. The party does poorly. Uh, President Clinton, President Obama, President uh, George uh, W. Bush all all had this, and uh, and apparently, you know, they based on what's coming so far, they all lost more than uh, President Biden is going to lose uh, this time this time around. So um, it's not the first time that predictions uh, didn't didn't always pan out, but you know, it's the nature of uh, politics in the uh, in the United States, where you know there are. Uh, as one author put it, there are a few dead certain positives that won't be changed tomorrow. <laughs> Considering President Joe Biden's low approval ratings, how surprising are these results? Well, I, I think they're they're surprising in that he uh, they don't reflect his ratings. But you know, as has been said about American politics by the great speaker Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. So uh, people vote uh, what's important to them in their congressional district or in their state, um, in addition to uh, national issues such as, uh, such as inflation or crime. So uh, people will vote on what's important to them. Um, they'll vote on how familiar the candidate is to them locally. Um, so there's a lot of factors in here, more than just national polling on, uh, on broad issues. There were also questions and referendums around abortion, and a lot of Americans say that they want to keep abortion rights. What does that tell you about uh, what Americans are feeling? Well, this reflects the general uh, public opinion that a majority of Americans uh, favor abortion within within limits. And this was known before Roe v. Wade was overturned, and now that is being put to the test in certain states. And uh, the result is what public opinion has told uh, has told us for years that Americans uh, will favor abortion within within certain limits. Uh, so the anti-abortion movement uh, and the decision of the Supreme Court uh, do not reflect the majority of American opinion on this issue. Dr. Joel Sokolsky is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we break down the U.S. midterm election results. At this point, the Senate is a 50-50 split. The House looks like it'll go the Republicans' way. Does that at all change the relationship that uh, we here in Canada have with the U.S. in terms of foreign policy? No, it, it doesn't. There's no major uh, bilateral issue that the Congress is seized of that would have an effect. Uh, trade agreements have generally been supportive. Um, most uh, people in Congress, whether Democrat or Republican, uh, are supporting the American strong position on Ukraine. Uh, most support, um, as we do, a, uh, a uh, uh, concern o- over China. So, uh, and on on many of these issues, it's, it has to do with local interests, not necessarily national. So, I don't think this is going to have. Uh, a great impact at all uh, with regard to uh, bilateral relations. You mentioned Ukraine as well. You're you're thinking that uh, the U.S. is going to continue on what it's been doing, no major change in terms of, you know, reversing course or doing something more to help uh, Ukraine. Well, they're doing a tremendous amount. I mean, this is the story of Ukraine. The You know, the, uh, after the Biden administration was criticized for pulling out of Afghanistan, people thought, you know, the United States had lost confidence in its allies, and then the first major crisis comes along, and the allies uh, do what they always do, which is to rush to the United States and uh, seek American help and uh, and American leadership. I mean, as long as the situation on the ground tends to favor Ukraine, as long as they're willing to fight, I don't think there'll be any 
there'll be any major major shift. If things bog down, um, if the Russians gain further momentum, uh, there may be there may be some pressure on Ukraine to settle. But right now, I think American policy is being dictated by what's going on on the ground, and it's favorable. Absolutely. Dr. Sokolsky, thank you for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. That is Dr. Joel Sokolsky, professor in the Department of Political Science at Queen's University. As we break down the U.S. midterm election results, which continue to pour in. There are several seats that still have to be claimed. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Canadian actor Ryan Reynolds confirming his interest in buying the NHL's Ottawa Senators. He was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon the other night when he officially confirmed the news. So there's a rumor going on that you may be interested in buying an NHL professional hockey team, the Ottawa Senators. The Ottawa Senators, yes, that it's is a Canadian true. team. Yeah, that is a Canadian NHL team, the Ottawa Senators. I am trying to to do that. It's a very expensive. So you know, yeah, I need like I need somebody, a, yeah. yeah I need a partner with you know really deep pockets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, much bigger. That's it's called a it's called a consortium or consortium or a consortium mm-hmm. when you form a group together to to buy an entity. And I just it's such a it's such a fancy way of saying I need a sugar mommy or a sugar daddy. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But you, you um, do need one. Yeah. yeah. And if that doesn't work out, I'll buy a U.S. senator, which anyone can afford. It's sort of key there. Just a, Wait till yeah. Wait till, right, wait yeah. till Wednesday, yeah. yeah but I love Ottawa. I grew up, I grew up uh, in Vancouver, which has my heart always, but, but I also grew up in Ottawa, uh, Canada. So I spent uh, a long time in Vanier there, which is a little town right inside Ottawa. Or and hockey area is community. just part of, the, uh, it's part of the system when you grow up. That's it's, part of it's, your blood. It's sad, it's scary, but children are eased out of the womb in ice skates in Canada. I mean, that's <laughs> how really they are. They're ready to go, yeah. NHL ready by the time they're four. Thanks to uh, The Tonight Show for the audio. Stephen Ellis is an associate editor and prospect analyst with Daily Faceoff and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Stephen, good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, before we dive into the Ryan Reynolds uh, potential ownership of the Ottawa Senators, there is news that the Globe and Mail is reporting that Hamilton Bulldogs owner Michael Anlauer, who is a minority partner with the Montreal Canadiens, has emerged as the front runner to buy the Senators, primarily because of his strong relationship with uh, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman and some other team owners. What do you make of this possibility? It sounds like Anlauer has been the name that a lot of people have been throwing since the start as, as one of the favorites. Um, when you hear Ryan Reynolds say he needs deep uh, someone with deep pockets, well, Anlauer is someone with deep pockets, and his ties to the Montreal Canadiens definitely help. He's he's well known in the NHL for that. Uh, he's got a lot of experience in hockey. He had tons play in hockey, so uh, this is a guy that for sure definitely sounds like the favorite, and he's got the money to make it work. If the 57-year-old Anlauer gets his hands on the Sens, what could that mean for the Bulldogs? Well, I would assume then that would probably be a team that would be going up for sale, but uh, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I guess we're still kind of a far way to figure out if what's going to happen. I know there's a lot of different names that have kind of been thrown around as potential owners of the Senators, so it won't be an easy battle. I, mean, I don't expect this to be a quick situation, but uh, yeah, that would it'd be a huge move for him to go to the, the Senators, but obviously he's had a huge impact on the Bulldogs for a very long time. Uh, there is one condition, of, I mean, there's a lot of conditions, but one of them is that the Senators must remain in Ottawa, so the NHL team can't move to Hamilton, if anyone is kind of thinking that. Uh, but this team is also going to be moving from Canada, which is just outside Ottawa, into a new arena in the city's downtown. So I would imagine the payoff of owning this team is going to be great. You hope so. And the, the, the kind of the story here is that when they get into their new arena, the team evaluation should be much higher. And you would hope that there'd be more fans going. I've been to that center's rink a few times. It is not easy to get to. 
from downtown Ottawa, so this would be something that would be a lot easier. And I think that would be a good thing for, for fan support and other uh, sponsors and everything. So that would be huge. That's a big part of this whole thing. So when it comes to Ryan Reynolds, what's your take on his potential involvement with the National Hockey League? Well, you know, it would be awesome because of his, his uh, him being Canadian and everything to be involved with a Canadian team. And uh, obviously he's a huge name. And I, I would love to see him going into meetings uh, with Gary Bettman dressed as Deadpool and <laughs> kind of see what happens there. Um, but, uh, you know, like again, I think the issue here is he's going to have to get a team full of uh, people with a lot of money. And being Ryan Reynolds, being as popular as he is, I don't think that'll be an issue finding people. But you're going against uh, other people with a bit more experience potentially in owning hockey teams with a bit more money to begin with. Uh, so it's going to take a lot of work, but I think it'd be fantastic for the sport. We are in very different times nowadays as opposed to you know the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even even the, the, the new millennium where uh, Hollywood icons are looking at owning pro sports franchises and athletes like Michael Jordan in the NBA, LeBron James looking at buying the Washington Commanders of the NFL. The celebrity aspect and the athlete aspect of ownership is it's great to see. Yeah, it's huge. And, uh, like, Pitbull, the, the singer, almost just won a NASCAR championship in his second year in the sport. And and that that was a really cool story. So it, it's awesome that we're seeing a lot of this. And it's good to see these guys going back into the sport uh, and just trying to help grow their favorite sports. And hockey's one where you look at it, it's not as popular as basketball, not as popular as football uh, in North America. But you bring these celebrities in, people are going to start talking. And I think that's going to be something that that's huge for 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 hockey, so that's why it, there is so much talk about Ryan Reynolds potentially getting it because he would be someone who'd bring so much attention. Yeah, I agree, Stephen. We'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time today. Absolutely, thank you so much. Stephen Ellis is an associate editor and prospect analyst at Daily Faceoff. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from five thirty to nine on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.